Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello from the Ionian Revolt of the 490s through the battles of Marathon, Thermopylae, Salamis, and Plataea. The vast Persian Empire of the Achaemenid dynasty was pitted against the pitifully small Greek states on its western periphery until the astonishing successes of Alexander of Macedon decapitated it, placing him and his companions atop that imperial trunk. But Alexander's death and the wars of his successors gave an opportunity to a new power to rise in the far west. In time, Rome, first as republic and then as empire, would face new Persian dynasties. For centuries, Rome and Persia warred in the Caucasus across Mesopotamia until at the beginning of the 7th century, an apocalyptic struggle resulted in the downfall of Persia, the crippling of Rome, just as a new world-changing force emerged from out of the Arabian Peninsula. That is a pretty good analog to a chat GPT's description of a millennia's worth of history, and, like lots of chat GPT descriptions, while some of the facts are correct, nearly all of the interpretations are false. Such would be Adrian Goldsworthy's argument in his new book, Rome and Persia, The 700-Year Rivalry. While there were periods of warfare, they were given the length of the two empires' coexistence very sporadic indeed. Moreover, both empires had a respect for each other that they offered no other polity, and the trade and commerce between them, not just in products but also in cultural mores, was perhaps the most important feature of their relationship. This is Adrian's fourth appearance on the podcast. He was last on the podcast discussing his book, Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors. He has also explained how Hadrian's Wall worked, or why we don't know how it worked, and why Julius Caesar needs to be taken seriously as a historian. Adrian, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. If you're a Roman enthusiast, you know that Crassus of the First Triumvirate was killed by a bunch of nasty Parthians in the desert. And a bunch of his soldiers became, I don't know, slave janissaries to the emperor of China or abducted by aliens or something like that. Let's begin right at the beginning, which isn't the beginning, with Rome versus Parthia. Can you describe the Battle of Carhai? Yes, it is one of those battles of antiquity that people still remember and they study. And if you have an interest in Roman military history, you probably have some idea of what you think happened at Carhai. And the basic truth is that Crassus ends up dead. A lot of his army either dead or captured, and his expedition fails. But once you move into details and think about it, it becomes a lot more complicated. First thing to remember, the most important thing that we forget time and time again, is that until you get to Justinian's wars in the 6th century AD, no other battle between the Romans and the Parthians or the Sasanian Persians is described in anything like the detail of Carhai. We can't really put together a reconstruction of the tactics, the events, how it all happened, of anything else. So it has become the quintessential Roman and Parthian encounter and been used to generalize about conflicts over the next few centuries. An awful lot is read into it. And because the Romans lose and the Parthians win, it's then broadened into this shows that the Roman legionary and the Roman military system had met its match at last. This is somewhere where it simply can't win because the Parthians, quintessentially the horse archer, very mobile, good firepower, doesn't stay to trade, blows with you face to face, but runs away, shoots you, comes back, chases you down. 
is a foe that you just can't defeat. And the problem is, as you look closely, none of those things are really true. And more importantly, the understanding of Cannae as this inevitable Roman disaster is also deeply misleading. Now, you've got two main sources for it with Plutarch and Dio. Dio is writing in the 3rd century AD, Plutarch in the early 2nd century AD, so both a long time afterwards. But they, And Plutarch, generally speaking, in his Life of Alexander, he says, I'm not going to go into the real nuts and bolts of history in detail. I'm more interested in character. So these aren't perfect accounts, but they are quite detailed, and Plutarch's is the most coherent. But if you look at it, it's rather as if Little Bighorn came to symbolize all encounters between the Plains tribes and the U.S. Army, instead of being the exception, and circumstances at the time that led to this disaster from the U.S. Army's point of view, and Carhai from the Roman point of view. Because actually, the whole thing is far more tentative than we'd suggest. The Romans aren't simply hemmed in and shot down by enemies that they can't reach. In fact, the battle is far more mobile than people have. And although the Parthians do confront the Romans, they surprise them, they don't attack as they'd expected to because they see the Romans are more formidable than they expected. Parthian commanders, the Serena, has this big unveiling where his cataphracts take off the coverings from their armor so they glitter in the sunlight. And suddenly, and it's a great Hollywood moment, lots of these horsemen appear on the ridgeline to co- confront you. It doesn't panic the Romans. And you've got to remember, up until this point, the Parthians have got really used to beating everybody they meet. And the Romans have got really used to beating everybody they meet. So these are both overconfident armies that haven't confronted the other before, have no experience. No Parthian commander is alive who can remember fighting a a basically infantry army, which the Seleucids had been, but that's now ancient history to this generation. And the, the critical thing is that there's more of a stalemate about this battle until Publius Crassus, the Crassus's son, leads off a force of cavalry, but also a substantial contingent of legionary infantrymen, and chases the Parthians who retreat and are driven away. And this is generally seen as, oh, it just shows that they're doing what they're doing. But this goes so far as he disappears from sight. Now, without knowing the topography of the actual battlefield, we can't say how many ridgelines, how, how, how quickly that would happen. But the sources, and Plutarch particularly, imply this takes quite a long time. He goes off, he chases the Parthians some distance, and it's quite a way before they actually start to rally and confront him. There is time for his infantry to keep up. So he isn't just herring off in a galloping charge a la Hollywood and chasing them around and then getting chased in turn and ambushed. More importantly, he sends a succession of messengers back to his father because the main Roman army with Crassus just sits tight, doesn't move, takes up more of a defensive position, and then basically abandons his son. Until it's far too late, Crassus doesn't do anything to support his son. Now, if he had, the battle quite probably would have been rather different. At the very least, Crassus could probably have rescued the detachment is sent off. And yes, they might not have defeated the Parthians, but they wouldn't also have been defeated. Because the big thing everyone forgets is that most of the Roman losses occur the days after the battle. When the Roman army retreats and its morale's broken and it's given up, Crassus despairing because Publius Crassus has been killed, they've lost a lot of their cavalry, and the Parthians hunt them down because one thing you don't want to do against a, a very mobile enemy is run away. That's the hard bit. And that's when the losses occur. There are a lot of wounded in the battle, but and that's serious, and the Romans certainly weren't on the brink of winning, but they weren't going to lose on such a big scale. So in that respect, the battle is misunderstood, but even more importantly, it's its context. Because 
any Roman marches towards the Euphrates, then people start talking about Alexander the Great. And the assumption is, if you go east, you want to go to India, basically, or as far as you can get. And there is an assumption that Crassus is out to conquer Parthia that, again, isn't really borne out by the situation where the Parthians have just had a civil war between two brothers contesting the throne, two brothers who together had overthrown their father to be king of kings. And the one who's asked for Roman aid dies before the Roman expedition can start. But there's an element of, are you really going up against a coherent Parthian empire? Or do you think you're going to do what the Romans have done in so many other places, what Caesar does repeatedly in Gaul? You will find local factions who will support you. You'll find a leader that you can make an ally, a friend of the Roman people, recognize as king. And you'll make money, you'll fight a few battles. But basically speaking, you're not going to conquer Parthia. You can't be 100% certain, but there isn't good evidence to suggest that that's what Crassus was thinking of doing, any more that Pompey's much lauded eastern campaigns of a few years before didn't actually lead to that much annexation. Yes, there's a new province of Syria, there's some expansion, but actually they're making friendly allies. And you get the glory for conquest, but it isn't conquest as we understand. It isn't about permanent occupation. So it might well be that from very early on, the Romans are thinking in more limited terms than we, we tend to ex expect and assume. Okay. There's a lot there. Yeah. One thing is, at least there's three, three points. And, and one is, I think that in many ways, perhaps we're using the, people have used the template of Caesar's Gallic Wars hmm. erroneously when applied to the East. That Roman conquest is always about gobbling up loot and treasure and tribes and slaves and all the rest of it. But that's not the way things work. Easter of the Mediterranean, as you describe it in detail, it's, things are much more complex than that. Um, there's also the ways in which one source, this one battle mm. has then is like, it, we are the drunks looking for the keys under the, the streetlight, even though we dropped them somewhere else. We've got Carhai and damn it, we're going to use mm. this to understand everything else that's ever happened. Mm. But before we do that, we started right in Medius race. Mm. You've used all these terms, Parthia. Seleucids. So what's a Seleucid? What's a Parthian? And are Parthians Persians? <laughs> With always, as the typical historians answer, it's a bit more complicated than that. But the, you've got to remember, of course, we all know about Alexander the Great. He charges off, conquers this vast empire, and then dies. He's still young. He's his, one of his wives is expecting a baby. He's got a half-brother who's considered unfit to rule. There's no obvious successor. And Alexander's empire as one entity doesn't last more than a matter of months or years if you're really stretching it. It breaks up into three main kingdoms, one in Macedonia, one based around Egypt led by the Ptolemies, and then the eastern part, really from bits of Turkey right the way over at times to northern India, falls under the control of Seleucus, who founds the Seleucid dynasty. So these are, like the Ptolemies in Egypt, the Greek-Macedonian, aristocrats who've been leaders in Alexander's army, who've got troops to command and make their own empire. So there's nothing inherently distinctive or uniting in the Seleucid Empire. It does include the greater part of the old Achaemenid Persian Empire, but not all of it. And it doesn't quite follow the same lines. And it's basically what Seleucus can grab and what his successors can hold on to. So they are a minority of Greek colonists, Greek settlers, and those who adopt Greek culture to a more or greater or lesser degree within those areas. Seleucus is the only one of Alexander's generals not to divorce the Persian wife that he's been 
given by Alexander the Great. So there is that an element of continuity, but nevertheless, this is still overwhelmingly the aristocracy are invaders who've settled, who've taken over, which of course is something that the Persians had done themselves generations earlier. So there's an element where locally you have regional dynasts, kings, cities, communities, clan leaders who seem to negotiate each change of central power and stay the man on the spot who can keep some sort of degree of control of that region through whichever empire you're looking at. The Parthians emerge in the third century BC. It's always a struggle for all the successor kingdoms to keep what they've got because there's so many threats, but more than that, they waste so much effort fighting each other because they still have this dream of Alexander, of reuniting everything. And they still think of themselves as Greeks and Macedonians. So there's a sense that you really need that heartland to be fully legitimate in the same way that Alexandria is built as the new Athens and a Greek city near Egypt, not in Egypt, (laughs) even though it's smack bang there. Culturally, there's that pressure. So they waste a lot of time. They fight each other a lot. Even though they intermarry, they try, and the alliances never really last that long. This then means that you've got lots of ambitious leaders, some of them Greek, some of them Macedonians, some of them from the peoples who've been there before, who see central authority either as vulnerable or simply as too weak to protect them and be worth befriending. So you get in the third century this spate of rebellions where regions break off. Now, the Parthians are part of that. In origin, they come from a leader and his warriors who come from outside, from tribes of steppe nomads. Parthia is an old Persian province, and they take over this area, they adopt the language of that area, but the Parthians, at least leader-wise, that appear in Herodotus with Xerxes' army when they come to Greece are not the same Parthians as the people who take over this region and then successfully rebel against the Seleucids, first create their own kingdom in Parthia, then over the years that follow, sometimes expand, sometimes get beaten back a bit. This is happening everywhere. So the Seleucids are facing more than one threat. It isn't as simple as the Parthians overthrowing the Seleucids on their own, Mm -hmm. but they will be the most successful of the rebels that appear and they start to carve out ever greater swathes of the old Seleucid Empire until you have these clashes with the Seleucids where they will capture a king, they'll kill another. This sort of thing doesn't happen that often in the wars of successes. You get killed by other Greeks and Macedonians. You don't get killed by people you'd consider to be foreigners, non-Greeks, barbarians. So the Parthians are very successful as war leaders, but also politicians. They're able to make enough of the local leaders accept them and accept their rule so that the system works. They, again, face rebellions because they're not, they're Persian in a sense that their power base is within the old Persian empire, and they've certainly intermarried with the survivors of the the old Persian aristocracy, but it isn't as simple as this being a, a sort of Persian revival culturally and religiously or anything else that overthrows these Greek oppressors, these Greek colonists. It's it's much more subtle because there are far many, there are far, far, far more other groups, people with their own sense of identity. And we have to remember the Achaemenid Persians were the latest in a succession of empires that have controlled some or, or all of this large area where civilization has such deep roots. Mm-hmm. And there are cultural traditions that persist here that are far older than anything we can really trace, say, in Europe. So you've got to do a deal with people like the Babylonians who have very much their own sense of identity, their own sense of record keeping, their own religion. And as Alexander has done a deal with them, so do the Seleucids, so then to the Parthians and others. There's no natural coherency 
to this empire, but there are some things that help bring it together and others that mean it's always... In the end, it's worth remembering, both for the Parthians and then later the Sasanian Persians, the title of their ruler is King of Kings. Mm-hmm. You're not just the great king. You are king of lots of other kingdoms that have their own local leaders. And within those, there are even smaller kingdoms below them. So it, it's that. And they will rule for four and a half centuries. So they are one of the most successful empires the region ever sees and the, the, the ancient world ever sees. But they're not as well recorded as the Sasanian Persians who supplant them in the third century AD. But essentially, it's the same empire. It mm-hmm. stretches from what's roughly Afghanistan to eastern Turkey to the Black Sea, Caspian Sea, down to the Gulf at times. Sometimes it contracts, sometimes it expands. But it's essentially the same empire. Most of the nobility, most of the communities remain right the way through, and they just accept another dynasty. So it isn't a fundamental change of empire. What's interesting, and I think part of your argument, is how similar that is to the Romans, that the Romans in the East, they it's the same policy. The emperor is, as it were, king of kings. He's not... Uh, establishing garrisons and governors and all the rest of that stuff to direct everyone. He's got lots of touchy ancient civilizations, Jews, Syrians, uh, Armenians, and then the confusing confusing Iberians and Albanians, which are always in the wrong place. Undergraduate (laughs) bothered me because they're obviously in the wrong place. All these people have been there forever since the Hittites. And, And yet, the Romans quickly learn how to do the sort of same thing. This is part of their policy and Parthia's policy towards the subject peoples, semi-subject peoples, is, the, is more or less the same. It's very similar, and they're both, they are very aggressive empires that expand fairly quickly. Uh, not with Alexander's speed, it is, does take place over generations, but they come to control huge areas from quite a small beginning. And there is this sense of compromise, and it's partly, I can see it more from the Roman point of view because the sources are better. Some of it's sheer laziness. They really don't want to run these people's lives for them. They'd like them to be peaceful. They'd like some money from them. But Mm -hmm. basically, they don't want to be bothered. They don't go out there to change the world. The Romans, we can trace how they use lots of these local dynasts and in quite strange ways, because you will find members of the Herod family will be appointed to kingdoms with which they have no connection whatsoever and sometimes be successful. There are other people the same. When in the succession of Roman civil wars in the first century BC, Caesar and then Brutus and Cassius, then Antony, then Augustus will go through and will reappoint or confirm or change the rulers, the relationships between cities, what's in this kingdom, what's in that kingdom. Yeah, it seems to work. People have pointed out that there's more coherency, really, between the western parts of the Parthian and Persian Empire, cities like Seleucia, even Tessaphon, very Greek, very urban-based, and the cities in Syria that had all been within the Seleucid Empire. And yet, those remain separate. There are changes in the border. It moves back and forth. But basically speaking, it doesn't become one whole as it had under the Seleucids, because If you look at the Parthians and Persians, the culture, the way society is organized is very different in the East. That's not a land of cities, not on anything like the scale elsewhere. It's far more dispersed because of the nature of the country and how you can farm there, essentially. A lot of it comes back to water and how you use it, how much food you can produce. So Parthia has a huge area geographically, but a smaller population and a smaller, it's not as wealthy as the Roman Empire. But that doesn't really matter. But the striking thing is they both expand and expand until they meet each other. And they do fight and they do test to see 
okay, how strong is this entity? How do we deal with them? Are they just the same as all the other little kingdoms that we can turn into a nice subordinate ally? And then discover that they probably can't, although they probably can present it that way to a home audience. So this is the, this is the argument hmm. that I thought very much my favorite Sherlock Holmes anecdote, the dog that did not bark in the night. <laughs> when you sit down and do the list and you have a nice... By the way, the maps in this are the best ever in any of your books. And that, that's good because it's really, me. you need <laughs> really good lots maps. Of places where it took me a long time to know exactly where they were. Yeah. As you say, I think every every student has gone through that Iberian and Albanian just crisis <laughs> of confidence in everything. <laughs> yeah, but the despite Carhai, despite mm. this, these mm. spectacles that we, yeah. through which we look at, mm. despite Sulla and Pompey, and Caesar being assassinated while he's preparing an expedition yeah. against Parthia, and then Antony's ill-fated attempt at doing yeah. something against Parthia. Despite all that, it sounds like hundreds of years of what I said in the introduction. It sounds like a it sounds like hundreds of years of conflict, but it's not. Mm. It's not. It is sporadic episodes of violence, but. Also, one of of commerce. So, could we? This is we perverted. We'll talk about this at the end. The ways in which we can pervert the past by looking at it with various lenses. But could we describe the sort of the not violence part, mm. the the trade and commerce part? Because the big problem is, you come in as a Romanist, you're trained to talk about Roman imperialism, and right. then the whole debate over Roman strategy and grand strategy. Are they defending the empire? Are they just waiting for the next chance to go and attack someone? And there are a lot more historians of Roman army than of Roman merchants. Yes, exactly. It's partly a reflection of the evidence. One thing mm -hmm. the Roman army did for that nice period, first century AD through to the early 30s, build lots of things and set up loads of inscriptions that just yeah. give us something to work with. So it gives us information. That's a streetlight um, again. Looking for yeah, the exactly. It's, and, but the striking thing is that all the time, they trade, and it's to mutual benefit. And if you look at the first century AD, there's tension under Augustus. There's tension a few other times. There's this very limited war for nearly a decade under Nero. But actually, it's mostly fought. It's mostly an Armenian civil war with each rival sides being aided by the Romans and by the Parthians. It, they, it, it is really extraordinary how Armenia was a pain point for century upon century, for both the Parthians, Persians, and for the Romans. There's always something going wrong in Armenia. It's one of the things, one of the, hopefully the, the messages in the book is that we, it's so easy to think of this from a Roman point of view, or then if you make an effort and make the best of the sources from the Parthian Persian point of view, even though that's harder for us to reach, but it's still important to ask those questions. But we forget that all these people living in the middle are players in their own right. They are not simply puppets. It isn't a, uh, I am pro-Roman, I am anti-Roman. It's, mm -hmm. they've got local leaders with local ambitions and they're thinking, what's best for us? Mm -hmm. And quite probably what's best for me, if the current king is favored and supported by the Parthians, then maybe if I go to the Romans for aid, I can offer them something and I can overthrow him. And maybe I can then make the Parthians live with that because this, they don't want very much from these allies. Neither side really demands very much. They just don't want them to be hostile. They don't want them to be causing trouble. And it's a striking thing in the war with Nero or in Nero's reign that I mentioned on one occasion, this restarts because the new king of Armenia decides to go and raid allied kingdoms next to neighboring him that are complained to the Parthians. And the Romans don't want him to do this. Nobody wants him to do this, but he's considered. So we have to remember these. And that's important in, when we look at trade as well. There are lots of other communities all the way through, both within the provinces, but also on the borders either side. And it's 
yes, you couldn't just cross from one empire into the other and not know it. But on the other hand, you could cross most of the time. Later on, there'll be regulations saying all trades got to come through this city or this market. But before that, for a long time, and of course, it's one of the big things. You get these Roman authors complaining about all the money that's being spent to buy luxuries from the east, from the outside. It's all the spices and the like and pepper and things like this. Some of it coming from Arabia, but a lot coming from India, a lot coming from beyond. Silk, of course. Yeah, could you talk about that? You have that great story about the silk going back and forth. Yes. Sorry, the, the remarkable thing. Obviously, we read in first century BC in Caesar's day, having a garment even partially of silk that's woven into something else is a really big deal. But the empire gets so much more wealthy that people are saying well, someone who counted as wealthy in the first century BC is now fairly modest. This isn't the luxury of Nero's day. It becomes far more people have access to this stuff. So the Romans want this and they'll pay for it. And when there's a market, human nature, people will come and fill this. They will try and supply. So this is coming from China. It's often coming via India and Sri Lanka via sea, or it's coming over land on not so much the Silk Road is always the wrong expression, but the Silk Roads. There are lots of routes. And we have these Chinese sources when they're pushing out as far as they can to the West, where they start to send embassies to explore what's there and they meet the Parthians. They're always looking at, okay, what do these people want? What can they sell? What can we, what do they want to buy? What's good for them? There's a commercial element in it all. And it's very clear. The, one of the problems is the easiest thing to trace in studying ancient trade is anything carried in a, an amphora, anything in pottery, because the pottery breaks, the shards don't go anywhere, and we can find them. It's the same as you find wrecks of merchant ships more, much more easily than warships, because there's this whole pile of amphorae shards or complete amphorae that stand up and stand out on the seabed. But you have the silk coming from China all the way through the Parthian Empire sometimes, or via sea and from the Red Sea through Egypt or beyond, and coming into the Roman Empire. But then you discover that there are Syrian workshops that are able to reweave this silk to make it finer and dye it in ways that the Chinese don't know how to do. And then it's sold back, going all the way to China. And the Chinese believe, because they've obviously been understandably careful about preserving the secret of silkworms, they think that Westerners have their own type of silk. So again, it, it's but it works in the same way you've got amber coming from the Baltic. So from outside the Roman Empire, through the Roman Empire, and all the way to the court of the Chinese emperor, where they become important symbols of office and prestige. So it, it works for everybody. And there probably aren't too many people who make the whole journey from, as far as they're concerned, one end of the world to the other. There are probably lots of middlemen all the way through. And obviously for the Parthians, it's very useful, both the king of kings, but also regional rulers. If you can levy tolls on the stuff that's passing through, but also if it gives you good access to all these luxuries that mark you out as special. So it is beneficial to everyone. And it doesn't seem to stop. When there's a war is at its height, it slows or the trade moves to another direction. But you will find it, everybody's trying to do this because it is so valuable all around. And the market is there in the same way during the wars with Napoleon, people were still smuggling stuff from England into France and vice versa because there was a market for it. So it happens. It's, and if you look, the first century, there's hardly any warfare at all, major warfare between the third century, sorry, second century, you've got Trajan, you've got Lucius Verus, you've got Septimius Severus, but maybe at a stretch, a decade is warfare, 90 years of tension occasionally, but peace. Mm -hmm. And the trade is flourishing all the way through that because, again, it's beneficial to everybody. 
Yeah. I think I said this already, but we'll get to this. The way in which I have always thought of this is like Soviet Union versus United States mm -hmm. and NATO. That, that life experience tends to pervert the way that we see the past. Mm -hmm. And then we take those lessons that we've perverted from the past and then apply them to the present, which mm -hmm. anyway, it's a, it becomes a very circular sort of argument. But I, of course, well, there was no good trade with the Soviet Union. And this is so lucrative and so mm -hmm. wonderful and beneficial for both sides. Why mm -hmm. would you want to ruin it? Because one thing I, I want to be, because I don't think we've ever talked about this before, but you, uh, uh, the Roman traders are going from ports on the Red Sea or mm -hmm. sometimes on the Gulf to India and back, mm -hmm. which is it, it's a fab fabulous and romantic sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's also like hard and nitty gritty. You talk in the sixth century, I believe, how Sasanians are trying to close out Romans from certain ports yep. in southern India. This is hard-nosed commercial yep. grab and steal and stuff. But what that indicates to me is that there are enough Romans to make that worthwhile. And, I mean, that, that whole thing. That there is a established trade between Roman Egypt and India. And, and I mm. think that is probably news to most people listening to the podcast. It is. It doesn't get developed and studied. And obviously, it's quite difficult to study quite, because yeah. you're dealing with, it's interesting, some Roman coins are recycled as ornaments and as jewelry in India because they don't want to use them as traditionally, but they like the, the workmanship. But you get, and you've clearly got Roman communities living in India and Indian communities probably living in the ports in, on the Egyptian Red Sea coast and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And again, Palmyrenes crop up everywhere from the city of Palmyra in, in modern-day Syria. And in the same way, Jewish communities crop up in a lot of places, and mm -hmm. many of them are involved in, in trade. And there are these networks that make it easier to deal with particular communities elsewhere. But it's on a huge scale, and it's been happening for a long time. In the same way, people forget that you've got Phoenicians coming from Lebanon to Cornwall in southwest England in 6th century BC, maybe earlier. And then you can read in 3rd and 2nd century BC and later where Phoenician Carthaginian communities in Spain are trying to protect their markets and not letting other merchants know the routes of how you get round the Atlantic coast and get to Britain and where you go when you get there. It's and there's one chap who's rewarded by Gardes, I think it is, because he scuttles his ship rather than let them follow it. <laughs> this is but you, again, you notice when Caesar comes to Britain, there's a major shift from ports where the goods are coming through, presumably with mostly Gallic merchants dealing with them around Hengistbury Head and further to the west. It all moves east to Kent area, the Thames, what will become London, because he's done deals with the kingdoms that are based there. So mm -hmm. they're now getting their pick of the luxury goods that they, can, they want from the Roman Empire. And also Roman merchants are getting more of a slice mm -hmm. thing. But it, ultimately, I, however much culture shapes people's attitudes and behavior, Fundamentally, human beings are the same as they've always been. And if there is a chance to benefit, people will take it. And they yeah. will go through, they will go to great trouble. The first people who find some of these routes, this is pretty dangerous stuff. And some of the long journeys must always be rushed through, whether it's risking storms in the Indian Ocean, whether it's traveling all that way over land, and with the risks of brigands, of predators of one sort or another, of not giving sufficient gifts to the local aristocrat that he doesn't decide just to confiscate your stuff. It's when there's in the 160s AD, a group of Roman merchants claiming to be sent by the emperor, probably Antoninus Pius, turn up at the Chinese emperor's court. This, the novelist in me thinks there are some fabulous stories that have been completely lost. And you yeah. hear of jugglers and performers that, from the Roman Empire that were very popular in China. Again, these individuals, probably slaves, who've gone all that way. It's, 
we sometimes think of the modern world as making travel easy. And travel certainly wasn't easy in the Roman world, but people did it. They moved around a lot. Before we move on to the really spectacular transformations of the 300s and 400s, in simultaneously for both Rome and Persia, which is extraordinary, they're unrelated, but yet simultaneous. Can we talk briefly about Palmyra, since that's been Mm. in people's consciousness since the ISIS's destruction Mm. of the place and uh, killing of the the eminent curator of of Mm. its antiquities? Uh, Palmyra occupies this (laughs) liminal space. I get five. Uh, But it is a liminal space. It is literally a liminal space Mm. in between Rome and Persia, Parthia. So could you describe... Paul, and you mentioned Palmyrenes being like Jews, like Lombards in the Middle Ages. They're, they form a, a small, coherent civic network, right. which extends everywhere. It's interesting because it's this relatively small city in pretty arid conditions, but they have access to water and they're able to cultivate a little, raise flocks. There's a sort of combination that the Palmyrene traders are the famous ones. And of course, later Queen Zenobia in the third century is famous for her rebellion and a woman taking on the Roman Empire, though really, if you look at it, it's probably a Roman civil war. Um, they start off, and you have early accounts that see them very much as between the two empires and separate from both. Though again, they're one of these allied communities that basically runs its own day-to-day affairs and is of benefit to both sides, so therefore doesn't attract too much hostility. Mark Antony tries to raid and plunder it for a fast buck, basically, but doesn't get much because they've evacuated all the, and they've moved all the most important plunder. But they are this community. They organize a lot through armed caravans or armed and protected caravans where you have, and you get all these inscriptions from Palmyra that talk about people who've conducted so many caravans, usually down to the Gulf or through, and that's the interesting thing is they go from Roman territory through to Parthian or later Persian territory, and they go with armed bodies of men. And nobody minds. This is not seen as an invasion. This is not seen as any problem. This is simply seen as practical commerce. You've obviously got these. You've got to navigate through all these nomadic and semi-nomadic communities on the way, the various, you might loosely call the Arab groups, and you have to make deals with them, alliances with them, protection money effectively in some cases from the right ones, because obviously they're all competing to get the best cut of this. And you've got to be willing to fight if necessary as well and get there and then come back. There are It's harder to trace the goods that come from the Roman Empire that people want further to the east, but they clearly are there and are clearly valuable. And we, because we, again, as always, we hear far more from the Roman perspective, but they are highly successful doing this. But they're also, there are Palmyrenes in those Red Sea ports attested from inscriptions and presumably over in India as well. So they're not just looking at one particular trade route. The advantage with Palmyra is that it's actually longer geographically. But because it's made safe, because they've organized this, it's rather like the equivalent of someone having built a big freeway or motorway that means that even though you might have to go a much greater distance, it's a lot easier to get from A to B via C than it is to go directly from A to B. So the Palmyrenes of that, they have this well-maintained, organized system that operates. And also they've got other routes coming up from those ports down in Egypt, from other ports on the Gulf. So it's very efficient. And it's, again, they survive because they're of benefit to everyone. What's much harder to say is after their rebellion, as it's presented, or their involvement in the Roman civil war that leads to their defeat, the destruction of the city initially, or at least 
destruction inverted commas because it soon turned into a Roman garrison town. There's much less trace from Palmyrene inscriptions and their own documents that tell us about what's going on. It's harder to say how much of that trade continues or whether it's badly disrupted and therefore other people think, I've got an opportunity to take over that market, but I might do it by a different route. All of these things are very hard to pin down because we just don't have the data to understand it properly. Let's talk about briefly about the extraordinary transformation, political, religious and political, of both the Romans and the Persians. Now, uh, we'll take it as read that most listeners, if they're interested in this, know that Rome became Christian uh, in the 300s. Uh, in a sudden sort of religious revolution uh, through both not merely the power of the idea, but eventually of social conformity amongst the upper classes. It became popular and useful to be. But at the same time, it's experiencing this in under Domitian, but going through Constantinople, it's going through this tremendous changes in how it's organized, how it's ruled. And then most amazing of all, in 324, Constantine moves the capital away from Rome to Constantinople orienting Rome towards the east. So that's huge. And that all happens in 25, 30 years of unprecedented, massive change. We could spend three hours talking about that. The same sort of thing is happening in Persia. And there's, it's completely disconnected, as we'll see, certainly religion-wise. But there are ways in which there are certain links. It's not just silk and spices and amber that's going through from Rome to Persia to China. There are ideas. There are cultural mores. I think the proskinesis, for example. The dome, the way the emperor is, begins to be regarded mm. is, has, anyway, many commentators call them in the Tacitian tradition. They just don't, it's not just the luxuries that are disgusting. Mm. It's these yeah. Eastern mores are also disgusting. So could you talk about, first of all, this revolution in Persia, and then also these ways in which the mores influence one? The big and the most obvious change is the dynastic one, which happens in the second quarter, beginning of the second quarter of the third century AD, when this chap called Ardashir rebels from an area in sort of modern-day Fars province in Iran, seems to make himself, first of all, a sort of a local petty king, then becomes regional king, and then defeats the last Assassin Parthian to rule as king of kings, overthrows him. Not only does that, but succeeds. Now, up until then, unless you've had Assassin blood in you, you can't become king of kings. There's been no challenges from outside. It's a sort of trick that some of these dynasties do. The Ptolemies are the same in Egypt. They manage to convince you that everyone, that you can't be king unless you're a Ptolemy. But the problem with that is any Ptolemy can be king. This is the case with the Parthians. They've had their bouts of civil war before. The Romans have had their intensive civil war in the first century BC that leads to the creation of the empire by Augustus. Then they've only had one serious civil war per century in the first and second centuries AD, which isn't great, but it's a lot. By ancient standards, this is pretty good. And compared to what comes later is really good. The Parthians have had, again, these periods where kings of kings have been overthrown, often by relatives, sometimes by sons, by brothers, by uncles, sometimes by different branches of the same royal house. People tend to assume that when Ammianus Marcellinus talks about this still going on and seems to imply that the Sasanians are actually part of that Arsacid family, most scholars dismiss it. I do wonder. I, I, I can't help wondering if they're actually from a distant branch. But nevertheless, they managed to do the same thing. They established the fact that unless you're one of the Sasanian family, you can't be king of kings. 
You might be a senior general, you might be a senior minister if you're one of the aristocrats, but you can't challenge for the throne. And that then lasts for the best part 400 years before really it's challenged, which is quite remarkable. One of the problems is we have a lot about Ardashir I, and particularly his son, the I, who left these incredible monuments. There's one that the scholars know as the, the raised gestae of Chapeau, comparing it to the raised gestae of Augustus. And it, it's similar. It's a list of achievements, people I conquered, people I subdued, people who submitted. And you have these marvelous rock-cut sculptures of victories in battle, of Roman emperors being trampled beneath his horse, begging for mercy, being captured by him. All these wonderful things. You have this new aggressive dynasty that's taken over and they have to prove themselves. And proving yourself, one of the best ways to do it is take on foreign enemies to try and unite the empire you've just grabbed by force and make everybody convinced that you're more important and it's better to stick together with you to go and bash the enemy. And that's true both with the kingdoms of the East, but particularly the Romans are definitely the big bad enemy. If you can take them on, you can show your strengths. So Adashir and particularly Shapur do this. Lots of changes will come in under the Sasanian dynasty, and there is an impression of a greater bureaucracy, more organization of religion, a more rigid form of the Zoroastrian tradition that harked back but wasn't a direct continuation of Achaemenid Persian days. The problem is some of this is a reflection, again, of the evidence we have. So there is a, a parallel inscription from a priest who is alive under Shapur and does participate in his campaigns, but becomes prominent later, who does his own monument nearby where he boasts about all the things he's done and goes around and basically stamps out bad religion and in installs the true faith, builds fire temples and lights the sacred, lights the sacred flame there, this sort of thing, and implies that he's the high priest of high priests, the same as king of kings. He's on a par almost, in the same way that you'll have the church hierarchy in the Roman Empire once it's Christian. So people often think it's basically the same thing. The big problem with the Persians is that the evidence is so limited and much of the evidence is very hard to date. It comes much later and you can't be sure whether what you're seeing is a radical and fairly rapid transformation, which does seem to be happening with the Romans, again, at least to some extent. Is that also happening with the Persians or is it a reflection of the weaker kings might actually see priests and the priestly hierarchy becoming more influential because the sovereign is weak. Whereas the stronger kings like Shapur I, yes, they do support these Zoroastrians, but they also, you have the prophet Mazda and people like that are favored as well. They seem far more, perhaps because they are more secure in themselves, or perhaps because they're individual beliefs or ideas. So Zoroastrianism, is it, is it becoming quasi-monotheist then? In, in this period, or has it always been, or is it? But because I, I, I certainly got the impression from you, and probably the impression from others that I might be reading in you erroneously, that there is there's an monotheism, certainly, but a, certainly a reforming, purifying influence of the of of Zoroastrian the the fire temple, and you, you can see how that would fire purification, all the rest of that stuff. But there seems to be an increasing, also proselytic a proselytizing mission for Zoroastrianism in this period going into the 6th century. There does, you certainly, again, it's hard to know how far this is going because the Sasanian Persians make a conscious effort to downplay the achievement and to destroy the legacy and the memory of the Parthian dynasty before them because mm -hmm. you've overthrown them. So mm -hmm. these people have to be illegitimate. So you have to be a reflection of everything that's true both in faith, in relationship with the gods, and also of law, of good government. 
every aspect of life as well as strengths. And they even, to the point where you get these medieval sources that have the Parthians only lasting a couple of centuries, you know, about half the time they really did. So they're quite successful in this. The Parthians are Zoroastrians of a type, mostly. And what's hard to know is whether we are forcing back a rigid view of Zoroastrianism onto mm. earlier periods, whether it's all, always been quite Catholic in it, it's, and had more variety. Because the Sasanian tradition is that they've been guardians of a fire temple in their home area. So it's going on, it's continuing, and it's essentially the same pantheon of deities. You will still get people called after Mithras in the Sasanian period. You will still get the main Parthian clans, clans like the Suren, you know, the fellow who commanded, defeated Crassus at Carhai, is the head of the Suren clan. Suren, Miran, Karan, these groups stay all the way through. Their heartlands remain the same. They still remain the clan chiefs, the leaders who bring their troops to fight for the king of kings and are his leaders, his ministers, his generals. So there are other elements, but they're less visible in the sources. There are some priestly monuments, inscriptions that give you the impression, but they may perhaps overemphasize their role. But there certainly is now one of the big changes is that as the Romans become monotheistic, and as they, the emperor starts to portray himself as protector and guardian of all Christians, and particularly with the empire, the right sort of Christians, but also more generally, then there is a perception in the same way that the Romans see Mastakites and others as potentially subversive elements because they're, they've come from outside the empire, they've come from Persia, therefore are they a sort of fifth column, are they a threat? Mm -hmm. Sometimes Christians are seen in the same way particularly before they start to develop their own church hierarchy that's separate and within the Persian Empire. But you will also get experiments with different forms of, oh, sorry, I'm talking about the Mazdakites instead of uh, the Prophet Mani. This is, this, that's doing things when I'm not thinking properly. So you have Mani, who is the one who is patronized to some extent by the I, but then executed subsequently when there's this m revival of a particular form of Zoroastrianism. Um, the Mazdakites emerge later. This is a form of Zoroastrianism or some emergence from it that is then brutally suppressed by what's considered to be more orthodox. Um, so you get these disputes in the same way the, the Christians are having their disputes between various forms of um, interpretations of the faith and Arianism and all Arianism, this sort of thing. that Monophysitism and so yeah, on. Yeah, but generally speaking, Roman emperors are rather less fussy when they come to protect Christian groups outside the empire than they are within. So they're a bit more generous. In the same way you could see Christian ministries, I'm sorry, missionaries in the 19th century and governments in Britain, in America, being far more sympathetic to some of the odd groups like the, the, during the Taiping Rebellion, this sort of thing, where you have people who've got a veneer of your faith, but actually they're doing something completely different. So there's all that confusion allowed from distance. There is a politicization of it, but it's not simple because it comes back to this sense of the empires becoming very similar. Both see themselves in much the same way. They each see themselves as the center of the world and the emphasis on being the Aryans and the purest form. You are the representative of Ahura Mazda, the greatest of the gods on earth. And he represents virtue and right and good law and the truth. This emphasis on the truth as opposed to the lie. Whereas so you are an earthly government that's trying to create that. So therefore, from a Persian perspective, you present yourselves as the center of the world, as the best form of government, the best form of society, the best form of religion, the most civilized people in the world, where the rule of good law 
is imposed and maintained by the king of kings who is a good and wise king. You can just change the names. The Romans present themselves in almost identical terms. To what extent is Roman imperial ideology by the fourth century being influenced by Persian concepts? This must be very hard to pin down. But this gets us, but I know that there are, as I said, Tacitian historians who are like, there are more eunuchs, Mm. all this Persian nonsense, this court ceremony is being Mm. adopted, right? So this is, it's fascinating the way that these influences are going, are not just, it's not just silk and spices. Other Mm. things are crossing the borders. It's, there's always been an element of that. There's been this perception, a sort of Greco-Roman idea of monarchy. Yeah, that and, sometimes pushes towards this formality, and, it, and the, the, the Persians yeah. do it. The Persians do it exactly. Right. That's yes. because they're the biggest kings. Therefore, they must be the best at doing this thing. Yeah. But they're still tyrants, and we don't mm. like this. They're barbarians. They're not doing things our way. But you remember how touchy people are in the first century BC. You know, Caesar's criticized for wearing boots considered to be after the style of the kings of Alba Longa. It's and that's a bad thing. Still but it trousers. changes. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. And the, the Roman Empire suddenly becomes trouser-clad. It becomes very formal, very ornate. The, the best representation of it is in the vestments of the Catholic Church, but also to some extent the Church of England Episcopalian. The very formal thing mm-hmm. that comes from that Roman tradition of where emperors, their courtiers, their ministers, their seniors come to be marked out by what they wear far more clearly and obviously and over the top spectacularly than has been the case before. There's no longer this Augustus wandering around Rome as one senator amongst all the others. This is a very different world. And a lot has happened because, of course, the Roman Empire has very much become an empire of this whole area with communities everywhere and elites everywhere that take part at the highest level. It's no longer Italian-focused in the same way, let alone Rome-focused in the same way. So there's an element where there may be something of that in the Sasanian tradition as well, that it's a sign of success because, again, we shouldn't see the Parthian-Sasanian change as a, a sudden, abrupt break, but as a, a gradual development. And it reminds us that you've essentially had this same empire by the end of it for over 800 years. And people have got very used to doing things that way. The Sasanian kings still get crowned in Tessaphon, a city founded by the Parthians, to be their version of Seleucia on the Tigris, their own city that's not quite so Greek. And it has, it's nice and circular, which is something that they seem to like, <laughs> as opposed to rectangles or squares. It's, it's just a different... Uh, uh, but, the, and they build one the, of several royal cities there. It's, yeah, it's um, the dome thing. It's yeah, like exactly. These, the historians of nomadic, I've been reading a lot of, the last couple of years, I've been reading a lot of, no, it's all, they're all yurts. They're all tense. It yeah. has to be cir- yes, it's got a- cir- circles versus squares. Hmm. The uh, Very briefly, throughout the 500s, what's called the age of Justinian, perhaps because the capital is in Constantinople now, hmm. all of a sudden Parth- Persia is a lot closer. The eye of the emperor is turned a lot more to the east. There's nothing really to look at in the west. So hmm. what? Um, there is war, there is frontier conflict after frontier conflict. But to quote you to yourself, you say, with hindsight, is striking how little had been achieved by either side after decades of warfare. So this is just, you know, Belisarius, all these commanders of that era, this is their training ground. This is their Fort Irwin. Uh, this is their national training center. But it doesn't really result in anything. Is that... 
not in terms of a major shift in the balance of power. And it, it's one of those things where the, the fifth century is striking for how peaceful it is. You know, there's a uh -huh. few brief bits of conflict, tension, saber rattling. Usually when the Romans are busy elsewhere or the per Persians are busy elsewhere, the other empire decides to try and take advantage. So, so this is what you would say, this is the form. This is reverting to form. This is the yeah. way things have usually been since mm. Carhai, even before Carhai. This is it's just a period of peace and commerce. And it's mutual advantage, but also the big difference that each empire finds is that if you go to war, the Persians go to war with the Romans, that's quite a big deal. Mm -hmm. If they go to war with some tribe, some kingdom, even a confederation of tribes, it's a different sort of thing. A, it's much harder to resolve because in the end, you could form a peace treaty with the Romans and you think more or less they'll keep to this. If we're weak, they might change their mind. But basically speaking, you can negotiate, you can trust the emperor more or less to keep his word. The emperor looks at the king of kings in the same way. And they've got this whole complicated etiquette of diplomacy as to how they deal with each other each time they come. So yes, they're a bigger threat, but they're also a much easier neighbor in many respects. Now, this is based around mutual defense. There's an element of you've got this row of fortresses along the border or in the areas where it's most easy for one side or the other to cross into the other empire, walled cities in the main that you build up, you garrison, and you protect. So that becomes a sort of very hard crust around the empire. Now, it's neglected to some extent in the fifth century because you're less worried. As the decades pass and nothing happens, you think, oh, yeah, they'll probably be fine. In the same way you could see in a local case how Western nations, particularly in Europe, have been caught by surprise by the war in Ukraine just because they thought that sort of thing can't happen. Even when there was abundant evidence to say that it could, you get used to things being as they are. And there's almost a problem when in the sixth century, when particular rulers can see short-term advantage, I need money, I need plunder, I need either to extort it from the other empire by threatening war, or I need to show that I'm serious have a quick war, plunder, and come back. One problem in nearly all these campaigns is that particularly when the, the Persians are successful and they do the, the most successful deep raids into the other's territory in this period that you get described, particularly once you get Procopius taking off and you've got these marvelously full sources of a sort you've never had since a little bit with Ammianus and then Tacitus in the first century, but you just don't get for most of the period. The King of Kings always tends to keep rolling the dice once too long, or when he can be, he's offered a good piece. He's got short-term advantage. He's got plunder. He's got glory. He's got everything. And then he thinks, well, if I do one more year, it'll be better. I can double this. But in fact, the Romans by that time are a bit more organized. All the soft targets have gone, and your war is costing you more and more each time you fight it. So, so it's a, it, important to explain for what we're about to talk about that both empires have are like a um, hard candy with a soft, gooey inside. Right. And, and also, I think I'm right in, in surmising that the armies are relatively small compared to the size of territories they have to cover. And they're used to fighting a frontier war. It's very much like a great war style army, which then has to, in the 1920s has to fight an insurgency. Or a, a war, war an army used to fighting insurgency who has to fight now a, a mechanized war. So they're limit, they're, they have a certain style of warfare, which they will have to change in the future in order to succeed. Is that sort of? It is, but I mean, there's always been the more conflict there is between the two, the quicker each side learns from the other. 
and yeah, they copy exactly. the other or they adapt. They find the big change that you see in the third and fourth centuries is the Sasanian Persians or their armies seem much more competent siegecraft than they'd mm-hmm. been in the past. But then that may be a reflection of an evolution rather than a sudden, hey, we've got a bright idea. Let's build these siege towers and catapults and undermine walls and this sort of thing. That happens. So that, again, means that both sides fortify even more heavily mm-hmm. because they know the other's good at this. By the 6th century, you've got armies that are lots of garrison troops that mostly are infantry, not particularly good in the field, but they make up the numbers. And then both sides are relying very heavily on their cavalry. And, the, and this and the, will move to the point where it's almost exclusively cavalry armies in field actions yeah, later and on. The Romans have learned, have become a cavalry army. And yep. They've adapted the part that they've got cataphracts, which is, that's the, a Parthian innovation. They've got full armor. Horses have armor. archers as well. It's one of the striking things. The stirrup seems to be adopted by both sides in the 6th century AD, maybe late 5th, but into the 6th. And it doesn't seem that we can't actually trace a period where for a while the Persians, say, have far more trained cavalrymen or cavalrymen that are, are better because of this technological change. The Romans have adopted it. By the time you get to the Strategicon, this military manual near the end of the century, it only gets mentioned as this is part of your standard equipment, that you have stirrups as well as a saddle. But the only time it's singled out is to show when a medic can move both stirrups to one side, so he can put a casualty in front of him with his foot in one, and he's using the other, so they've both got some degree of extra balance. So you've got an innovation and this technological revolution in many respects, but it's so quickly copied that you don't really notice. And that, that's a sign of, again, because both sides, these are very sophisticated military systems. We know now that the Persians have far more permanent or semi-permanent troops than here in our literary sources, because they've got all these frontier defenses up by the Caspian Sea that are permanently garrisoned. You go into how the, it's fascinating, the lengths to which the Persians t- took to defend some of the more open areas on their frontier along the Caspian Sea, walls, garrisons, marshalling areas, marshalling yards, semi-permanent camp structures. It's really, it's amazing. They were, because they're concerned about nomads, those damn nomads coming out of the north, just like they had. Yes, exactly. It's a, and that's an element of continuity, which had been true for the Achaemenid Persians. It had been true for the Salu- Alexander, the Seleucids. You have an area you can't close off. You have this vast area of steppe where the politics of the tribes there, the emergence of war leaders, the successful ones need more plunder. The unsuccessful ones get chased away, need somewhere to go. So there's always this instability. And your best bet nearly always is to recruit these people, try and get them to fight for you and go off. And they do that again and again. But the problem is then you've got to pay them. Yeah. And one of the, the pretexts for a lot of these wars in the 6th century is we've built these frontier defenses. We're protecting your empire as well. The Persians are saying to the Romans from these nomads that we'll eventually, the white hands, well, they'll get to you if they come through us. So pay us some money and we'll just help us do this job properly. And that's a good pretext. And then as it becomes, because the Romans don't want to see themselves as tributary in any way, how can you present this? How much will this Persian settle for? And to be honest, like so many forms of taxation, how much of it actually goes to its stated purpose? How much simply goes into the royal coffers and what should we do now? They're there all the time. And this, is, this will be a feature as well that will make those later wars all the more dangerous because each side can suddenly face this serious threat from elsewhere, whether it's in the Balkans for the Romans, whether it's in between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, in particular for the Persians. And suddenly you've got this dangerous enemy and they they defeat, they kill more Persian kings of kings than the Romans. Yeah. We are 
dangerously near oh, our sorry. planned time. And we haven't even gotten to what I really wanted to talk about uh, and geek out about, which I've been fascinated ever since I first knew it existed. The greatest war that no one, no, the most educated person doesn't know ever happened. Yeah. The last war of antiquity is a recent book called it. Maybe the first medieval war, maybe the first crusade. Um, really, all the stories of King Arthur are wrapped into one war, but this actually happened. Yeah. One of the great apocalyptic civilizations confronting mm. wars in maybe in human history mm. with a sort of level of tragedy mm. that any of the Greek Sophocles would have said, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. That's not bad. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. Ending I can do is, one of those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that ending is, I can't really, yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. So could we all have, we all have three hours to talk about it. Could we talk right. about Heraclius and the great last great Roman Persian War. It is. It's this change. You've had this sixth century AD where they fight far more than they ever really have since the third century. And, but it doesn't go very far. You end up, you might lose a border fortress or two. You might lose a city or two. You might have a plundering raid. You might suffer a defeat, but you win some victories. Overall, the balance of power doesn't change, but both spend lots of money. Both lose more than they gain from this because it's very costly warfare. And the good ancient type of ancient war is where you take lots of plunder, lots of territory, lots of slaves, captives, and you make a profit. That doesn't happen often enough to either side. In the, you have this oddity where you have a Persian king of kings is chased out by an internal coup and then restored to power by a Roman army under the emperor Morris. Morris gets himself murdered and the Persian king of kings then claims to be seeking vengeance. Now, this starts a war that goes on as the Romans plunge themselves into a civil war. The Persians start winning and winning bigger than they ever have before. Again, if we had a Procopius, if we had a source that would tell us of those years, we'd probably have a different picture because it's the, the scholars who work on this remind us you have years of attritional warfare taking city after city in this hard crust. Again, we go back to the, the edge of the empire is where it's really tough. That's strongly fortified. That's hard work. The Persians, over the course of several years, take all of these things. And then Khusra II, obviously, at some point, decides he's going for gold. He's going to actually win this time. Let's see if I can destroy the Roman Empire, something nobody's tried to do before. And it's partly because he may even be surprised the degree to which he's won. But the big difference to everything earlier is that in all the earlier conflicts, and it's there with Crassus, it's there with Tacitus in the first century, it's there all the way through, is that they keep stopping to negotiate all the way through. A couple of times a campaigning season, but certainly at least once a year. Embassies are going back and forth. They might be officially about exchanging prisoners, but all the time it's, okay, what's the deal? How do we settle this? What do you want? What will you take? What's your, your bare minimum for peace? And then one side gains an advantage, so they fight a bit longer. You have this with Khusro. He stops talking to the Romans and he arrests ambassadors. He executes others. This is an incredible breach of behavior. And it early takes on. us, yeah, sorry. And it takes us right back to the age of Xerxes and Cyrus. It's the Spartans killing the ambassadors. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and then what happens afterwards is it's like Cyrus, mm -hmm. Khusro, the raids become invasions. Yeah. And then of all people, then he takes Jerusalem mm. and he takes the, he takes fragments of the true cross. Mm. And if that isn't bad enough, then he takes Alexandria yeah, and, and Egypt. This is unprecedented stuff. It is. It's, you've got to Antioch a few times and plundered it, but you've always left it. Now you occupy it. It's yours. Yeah. And you keep, and as you say, Jerusalem as well. Again, long siege, but you get there. 
Alexandria, there seems to be less opposition in Egypt. It's not that well organized. And the Romans are still so busy fighting each other. And then Heraclius takes over. He's the victor and he's punished the usurper as he plays it. But the Persians won't talk to him either. And he even this very strange thing where you have a letter sent by the Senate in Constantinople with ambassadors going to Khusro's representatives trying to say, okay, we'll even ditch our emperor if you'll just give us peace or talk about it. The idea that the Senate somehow means something in that political diplomatic sense in a way it hasn't for so many centuries, mm -hmm. just because they're desperate. But you have the, again, the, the interesting thing is that a sort of decisive factor that Khusro thinks he can win because he allies with the Avars, these tribal groups that have come in through with Bulgars and others, people like that, through what's now Bulgaria into northern Greece and threaten Constantinople itself. And the Romans just cling on. Constantinople is besieged. The Persian army watches. It can't in any significant form get across the Dardanelles, but it can see what's happening. You could never imagine a Persian army getting to Rome and watering its horses on the Tiber. You couldn't really imagine one getting within sight of Constantinople until these last few years when they do it a couple of times. It is radically different. And from a Roman point of view, you have this again, Heraclius comes when he starts telling his men, he launches these raids into Persian territory, trying to do something because his mm -hmm. early attempts to face them fail. And he starts telling his soldiers that you're, you will die a martyr's death if you die in battle against the Persians. He rallies them with the, the idea that this is a war of faith, which they've never presented any conflict like that before. And very strikingly, when they're facing the Muslim Arab armies a few years later, Heraclius doesn't make that appeal to his men. You know, these are not seen as, as alien or presented as the great enemy, the, the life or death struggle, the people who will destroy us as mm -hmm. the Persians. But Khusro bites off more than he can chew because it ends up with overstretch where he can't deal with this relatively small Roman army under Heraclius. Then Heraclius allies with the Turks, Western Turks, and again agrees to marry a daughter to the, the Khan of the Turks. That's pretty staggering. This is not what Roman emperors do. You've had that whole war that begins when, under Justin, the, the Persian king of kings has wanted the Roman emperor to adopt his son, and the Romans decide, well, oh, this is a bit too risky. We can't allow her any sort of claim to the throne or to power. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you're willing to give a daughter off. The marriage doesn't actually happen because of political upheaval with it amongst the Turks, but it shows, how, again, how desperate they are. Heraclius wins a few victories that aren't great victories, but it all falls apart as the Persians give up and as Khusro becomes less and less trusting of his own commanders until one of them rebels against him. And this is where you get people from outside the royal family making themselves king of king, not for long, okay. but for enough. And you have this very rapid decline into civil war. And the war is turned around so quickly where the Romans go from being on the brink of utter destruction yeah. to taking back all that they've lost. And the victory, he wins a victory at Nineveh, which mm. for a Christian Roman has a certain resonance. Mm. And he doesn't, does he actually manage to destroy a palace and sow it with salt or something like that? There's some sort of triumphal act like that. So we've got, what's amazing about this war is you've got images of Rome versus Carthage, the great enemy, and from the Old Testament mm. in a way that only a Roman Christian of the period would blend these together. Well, yes, yes, it, it's that. Yes, it's becoming such a big thread in how you're perceiving yourself and your what's, how do you measure victory, success? How do you describe it and talk about it? Yes, they plunder one of the royal palaces because, again, the, just like the Parthians had before them, the Sassanian kings move around. And that's partly a reflection of the sheer size of the empire, but also 
There are some areas you don't want to spend the summer, others you don't want to spend the winter, but you move around to be available. One of these is overrun. He gets away with some of the movable plunder, but an awful lot's left, including, and we be interested to know what they were, lots of Roman standards and how old these things were okay. that they find. When you think there's, you have in Les Invalides in Paris, flags that the French, sorry, were taken from there in 1940 by the Germans and given to Franco, things the French had captured in 1808 and 1809 from the Spanish army. But how far back to go? Because there have been lots of Roman defeats and standards had at times been such a big deal for the Romans. Mm-hmm. So the king gets away. The king is then killed in a palace conspiracy, as are most Persian kings of kings. The sun doesn't last very long. He's murdered as well. And it, there's chaos, which the Romans exploit. But you, you end up with both empires severely disrupted, severely exhausted. Yeah. And you don't really know how much of the Roman Empire was fully brought back under control in those couple of years and how well how long did it take to remove these Persian garrisons that yeah. were set up? You have a few cases where there is one where it refuses to surrender. It's like some sort of Japanese on an island in the Pacific. They just say, well, we're not going. Eventually are defeated. Or the massacre that occurs when the Roman troops turn on the Jewish population of the town, accusing them of being pro-Sasanian. Right. But somebody gets through to Heraclius, who then orders the massacre stop, but doesn't actually do much more to benefit the survivors of the community. But it, You've got all these volatile elements where, and it's foreshadowing what will happen so relatively soon afterwards, where the Arab armies come in and you have, again, patterns of some resistance, but an awful lot of communities have realized we've been occupied before. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so bad. These people seem to be treating us fairly well. They're offering us good terms. Let's maybe hang around a few years and maybe Heraclius himself or his sons, a new Roman emperor will come back and save us again and we can be Roman again. But in the meantime, why die for a lost cause? Because the emperor and the imperial army is not protecting us as it used to. And it that, of course, there. does not happen. No, it's, uh, but again, nobody knows that. You know, no, they're no, it's probably not. thinking that the Arabs, even more than the Persians, are people who come, hang around for a bit, plunder, and then go away. Right. And they it's don't like, realize that it was something different. All the sources, John of Damascus and so on, and for the theological sources would say that these are just heretics. Yeah. Um, what's the difference between these early Muslims and Monophysites? Mm. Okay. They're a, little, they're a little confused. Both of them yeah. are confused about the divinity of Christ. But at least uh, they're trying to get to the right tier. You know, so exactly. Right right. They're not Zoroastrian. They're not fire worshippers. Uh, and that's interesting with the early Arab armies as well. We had the evidence for plenty of warriors coming who were Christian and Jewish or pagan. Yeah. But, but the, those of the book, the monotheists are preferred. You can deal with them, but they get their rewards. And as long, and the communities you settle again, as long as they toe the line, they don't rebel, they pay the tribute, you don't go and at that stage, build a big mosque on Temple Mount, you actually just build one off to the side at first. Yeah, yeah, so you've got yeah. your place of worship and you leave all the churches. You know, yeah. it's, it's, again, because we tend to project back what's going to happen later and the greater hostility, it is that striking thing. The Romans are not saying you fight against the Arabs and die in battle and you'll be a martyr and go to heaven, as they have done against the Persians. That's right. it's not, and it's not seen as desperate as that. They are, they're closer to it. They're nearly us. And anyway, they're probably not such a serious threat. We'll be able to beat them in the end. Yeah, and they and probably a lot of these guys who are winning, beating the Roman army at Yarmouk, is it Yarmouk? Yeah, uh, are guys who are just fighting with you not that long yeah. ago against Persians. Mm-hmm. These are the these are the Arab levies that were part yeah. of the both the, of the Roman host and then also on the other side too. Yeah. Just like that's there are hun, they, Huns on both sides. Exactly. That's how you know how to get everywhere. This is not unfamiliar territory to you, nor are the communities there that unfamiliar, and you can. 
you know how to talk to Romans because you've often been part of the Roman army. So you have a sense of how do you flatter the local bishop, the local leaders? What do they expect? All these sorts of things. And they seem to be, there's, you can look at it from one point of view and say, the Romans and the Persians are very weak because the Persians are collapsing just as rapidly. Mm -hmm. But also the Arabs are very good at what they're doing. And they have the generals of talent and the diplomats of talent often combined into one to make this happen so quickly. They've been trained Uh, in the same wars. Yeah, exactly. And they they understand each other. They know what they're doing. We're going over. So there's lots of stuff we can talk about, sources and interpretation. But I wanted to, we shouldn't pause without discussing at least some of the things I've alluded to earlier. The ways in which it's inevitable that our own experience of great power conflict should then condition the way that we see great powers conflicting in the past. And I'm sure we're both kids of the late Cold War. Yep. That's how we think about things. Mm. And I'm sure that you must have encountered that in yourself numerous times saying, no, this is not the way that Mm. I'm looking at this through these Cold War lenses, and it's not the way things were. Mm. It was natural. A friend of mine who was in the the officer training corps and then the territorial army, same sort of age as me, was saying he actually found it useful since the war in Ukraine because he remembers having lectures about how to recognize Warsaw Pact vehicles. And he could actually say, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I know when I can walk down a street, I know what car that is, but I know what a tank is or what an AP is. Um, there's another, and I remember being surprised teaching students by about 2000-ish where the Cold War didn't mean anything to them. It just right. didn't have that resonance if you compared it. But again, sometimes it's, we forget Cold War goes on for less than 50 years. And this is 700 years of contact. It's also another thing, particularly in Britain, you were asked to, you know, time and again during your education to write an essay on what were the causes of the First World War. And the way the various arguments went, whichever one you took, there was almost this inevitability. All these, all these alliances reined up against each other. They're bound to fight. And nobody looks at all the years and all the international crises before where there wasn't a First World War. (laughs) And whether the the few bits of chance that might have have played this. It interested me because, again, it made me think some of the big debates in Roman history, like the grand strategy question and how your frontiers work, they just don't seem important. When you look at what they're actually doing for so long, yes, you can see quite abundantly clear the Romans are not so innately aggressive that they can't stop when they, they realize it's not to their advantage then it isn't just this biological thing that some people would describe it as. And again, the Persians and the Parthians before them, they seem very the same. They're very aggressive. Then they run into this neighbor and actually think, okay, yeah, what's significant is the amount of prestige fighting involved where you need money or you need to show, prove your credibility as an emperor, as a king of kings. There is a perceived insult. You choose to act upon that. And if the enemy doesn't submit, then... You fight them for a bit, but you fight until they do something that you can portray as, yes, this is submission, therefore it's fine. So it's like the king of Armenia who goes to Rome, he's brother of the Parthian king of kings, and is crowned by Nero in person and has his sword nailed into his scabbard. And scholars dismiss this and say, oh, this is the Romans giving in, this is a sham, this is obviously a Parthian puppet who's now taken over and the Romans just trying to pretend that they're in charge. But actually, it isn't that, because this man has had to go all the way to Rome to admit that he's doing that. He's made the symbol that I'm not going to fight. And frankly, when you look at members of the Parthian royal family, they are often their own, the worst enemies of a king of kings rather than necessarily natural allies. But it's partly this 20th century perspective. It isn't just the Cold War. It's this sense with particularly the Second World War that a war is decisive, mm-hmm. that it should end with the 
radical change so that that power will never fight you again. Most of human history isn't like that. Yeah. Most of human history is a pattern of the same countries, the same states, the same cities in Greece fighting each other generation after generation, but mostly getting on. Yeah, it's, we've talked about this in podcast before. I'll link to that. The idea that wars always end decisively mm. and they end decisively because of decisive battles. Mm. It's like one of the biggest myths about for lay people looking at warfare that there that mm. could possibly be. The entire sweep mm. of human history tells you that mm. Battles do not necessarily mm. win wars, mm. and wars do not end with parades and a clear-cut victor. That's how you like to talk about it, as if that's what's happened. But yes, it, it doesn't. And it's why places like Belgium, the Low Countries, or bits of Armenia, bits of Osroene, that eastern part of Syria along the Euphrates-Tigris, they see campaign after campaign, century after century, because they're the natural routes for one side to get to the other. And they are never fully under control. So, yes, you've got your frontier defenses, but frontiers are never so fully closed that you can't do anything about it. So, yes, it is. It's that. It's a reminder. We sometimes we focus on a few bits of human history and we think they're typical, and that's the advantage of looking at the ancient world or indeed anything else. Just to remind ourselves, things are different. And the 1939 to 49 was not, 45 was not typical of human experience any more than 1914 to 18. The Cold War was not typical. There are similar things. There are aspects of those, that relationship, that rivalry, that have echoes in the past, but it's never neatly the same. My guest today has been Adrian Goldsworthy. His new book is Rome and Persia, the 700-Year Rivalry. Adrian, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking again. Thanks for having me once again. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 